0: I started getting this sense back in September as I started thinking about and looking ahead to today and the coming weeks as today marks the beginning of Advent, a season of waiting and anticipation. You probably picked that up in the prayers and in the songs that we sing today, season of anticipation as we look forward to, as we expectantly yearn for the coming Christ, both recounting his first advent, his first arrival in Bethlehem, but then also recognizing our need for constant arrivals of Christ in our situations. And then, of course, doing a little bit of waiting uh, of our own. So we are not just reenacting Israel's wait for her Messiah, although we do that. In fact, you'll notice throughout this season that many of the texts we are going to be reading from this year will be planting us in the Hebrew prophets. But it's not just a reenactment of Israel's waiting, because we too await the return of Christ to establish his reign and rule. This is a season of waiting that spans the four Sundays prior to Christmas Day. And for us, that's not about trying to extend in a way, the Christmas season, so that we can all be stressed out for a longer period of time, right? Um, this is not sort of the, the church's version of big box stores doing the rollout of all of the Christmas paraphernalia in October, which creates that three-month period where it's just constant reminders. Oh, I've got so much to do before the holidays arrive. That's not what this is about. In fact, one of the benefits, one of the things we are hoping to accomplish during this season is to subvert that norm a little bit. So instead of constant, never-ending celebration for 40 days prior to Christmas, Advent calls us into some stillness. Into moments of calm where we intentionally prepare our hearts and and our minds to receive Jesus. And then maybe we will be better prepared to enter into 12 days of celebration during the Christmas season. There's, There's a reason the church celebrates seasons as we do. I heard one pastor recently suggest that if we could remember this, that the church calendar goes Advent and then 12 days of Christmas, maybe that would help keep us from being burned out and bummed out when Christmas Day arrives. Have you ever felt that? Where you're just ready for the day to be over so that you can return to normal life. So this is a bit of what we hope to do during this season. It's an alternative. Not not that we don't participate in celebration. Not that we don't go to parties before Christmas Day. Not that we don't gather together with friends and family. But at a deep level, we do want there to be this sense that it is a season, a time of preparation so that we might fully enter into the joy of Christmas. This is the ninth Advent season that I have been a part of here, and I am thrilled, which doesn't seem possible, but I am thrilled to begin another year with you all. So let's get after it this morning. As I mentioned, we are going to be spending some time in the prophets for the next four weeks, specifically this year, the prophet Isaiah. Today's reading from the prophets is Isaiah chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 1. This is what we read. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So this introductory statement, chapter 2, verse 1, is very, very similar to the introduction we find back in chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, the prophet sees a vision. The beginning of chapter 2, he sees this word, but both of those descriptions are highlighting divine revelation from Yahweh, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, if you've read through Isaiah chapter 1, or really if you've read any of the prophet Isaiah, you know that when Judah and Jerusalem are mentioned by Isaiah, it is typically not in a positive light. Throughout this work, we are seeing the prophet point to the wickedness of Jerusalem, point to the evil and the corruption Of Judah and insists that for that evil there is going to be judgment. But then throughout we find these glimpses of hope that it won't always be that way. Evil won't always rule the day, vulnerability won't always be Israel's reality. You see, Jerusalem was very much a vulnerable city with a vulnerable people. At times, she flourished. At times, she was destitute. The the city's well-being, because of her vulnerable state, was often dependent, especially at the time of Isaiah, dependent on the various superpowers at play. If the dominant superpower happened to look favorably on Judah, well then, Jerusalem might flourish. If not... Jerusalem was likely going to be destitute, but the, pro- the prophet here promises that wickedness and vulnerability won't always be their reality. Why? Because the promise is a new day is coming. Something else is around the bend. There are new possibilities and new realities that you can expect. The prophet seems to point to a day where Jerusalem would be magnificent once again, says what we read then, continuing in verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So in the middle of this constant declaration of judgment because of wickedness and evil and injustice there is at least a brief glimpse of hope here at the beginning of chapter two in the middle of judgment and uncertainty in the middle of vulnerability and despair the prophet says in the latter days it will come to pass there is a promise Of something different. Now, it is definitely a promise that is still cloaked in uncertainty. There's no time frame provided. All the people know is that they should trust that history would eventually reach its culmination. They don't know how that will happen, they don't know when it will happen, but they should trust that the purposes of God will be fulfilled. Isaiah says, In that day, The mountain of the house of the Lord. So think the temple in Jerusalem. That mount will be established as the highest mountain. Not not literally, of of course, unless there's some unexpected and dramatic shifting in the earth's crust. The the mountain is not going to surpass other mountains in the area. I mean, it, it wasn't even the tallest mountain in the vicinity of Jerusalem. Just outside of the city, the Mount of Olives is is higher, so the prophet isn't saying that it's going to be the tallest physical mountain, but what it represents, in terms of its preeminence, it is going to be the greatest mountain. It will eventually overshadow even Mount Sinai, the Mount of the Law. And this mountain would one day draw all people. It will draw all nations, Jews and Gentiles alike. So think of melting snow and melting ice flowing down a mountain, flowing into streams and then rivers. This is sort of the reverse of that. The mountain of the house of the Lord, all nations and all people streaming up that mountain to learn the ways of the God of Jacob. This mountain, this high mountain, will one day draw all people. The promise given to Abraham back in Genesis 12 is you will be a blessing to all people. One day, the nations streaming up the mountain of the house of the Lord. Eventually, all nations will declare together, let's go to the house of the Lord. And as followers of Jesus, we believe this is reached its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And on a literary level, it, it uh, is demonstrated throughout the book of Acts as the church comes on to the scene and grows and eventually throws open the doors for Gentiles who are and always have been loved by God. So this is the light through which we understand a text Like this, let's go to the house of the God of Jacob. Let's be taught in his ways that we might walk in the paths of our Lord. Now, that process, if we choose to enter it, will undoubtedly place restrictions on us, it will undoubtedly limit our freedom to a certain degree, but it is the path to life. It is the path to life. So let's keep this text in our minds, Isaiah chapter 2, as we now transition and look at our gospel reading, which Austin read a moment ago. Well, Let's scratch that. Let's let's read the last couple of verses. We will eventually get to the gospel reading. Let's let's look at the last couple of verses, though. Verse 4, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I love this section from Isaiah. Very similar to something we find in the Hebrew prophet Micah. Chapter 4, when the nations flow to the mountain of the Lord, the Lord will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes, not in an arbitrary or thoughtless way, not like the judge from The Good Place. Is that Maya Rudolph who plays that character? Who seems pretty arbitrary at times. Hilarious, yes, but arbitrary and erratic and aloof to the plight of those she is judging for but the prophet says come to the mountain of the Lord gladly trusting that the judge is just that the judge is merciful and when the judge is on the scene judging between the nations there will be no need for swords There will be no need for armies that bear those swords to settle disputes among the nations. No, they can now beat their swords into plowshares. They can beat their spears into pruning hooks. They will be able and set free to transform their instruments of death and destruction into instruments that support and nurture life like a garden. It's a beautiful image of the peace that is offered in Jesus Christ. And just imagine that. The nations no longer needing to learn war. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. There will be a day when there is no need for weapons. No need for war, for war planes or battleships. There will be no need. So that's sort of at the macro level. We could bring it to the micro level. There will be no need for locks on doors or security systems. I grew up in a house where my folks never locked our front. I never had a house key until I moved out of the house. We never locked our doors. It's a different world today, but one day we will have no need for locks. No need for security systems. Come, let us walk In the light of the Lord. Now, I want to be careful here because I do think it's easy for us to point fingers. Because maybe I'm not a violent person physically, but we can be weapon free and we can long yearn for peace on a global scale. We we can protest wars, uh, but, but still be wrapped up in violent patterns of thought and violent attitudes, or hatred toward others. I can argue for peace all day when I'm focused on wars and actual weapons, and I can still lack peace in my own heart and in my own mind. So wherever you fall on that spectrum, I think the prophet would say, to each of us, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us learn the ways of our Lord, the ways of peace. Let us walk in the paths of the Lord. Let us beat our physical and our metaphorical swords into plowshares. Let me harness the violence of my tongue, the violence of my mind, and transform those potentially violent tools into life-giving Nurturing tools that help plant and care for those metaphorical gardens all around me. Come, let us walk in the paths of our Lord. Okay, now let's get to our gospel text. So just as the prophet calls us to remember the first coming of Christ and join in Israel's weight and expectation of her Messiah, During this season, we also, as followers of Jesus, await the second coming of Christ. And as we await, I think it is only natural in that process that we would come to terms with, that we would recognize and admit our great need. Our great need. During this season where we expend so much time and energy and even finances on meeting perceived needs or just desires that we have, during Advent, the church recognizes that we always have needs that cannot be addressed through financial means. And as we come to terms with those needs, we declare, we pray, we ask, come, Lord Jesus. One of the things we pray every week, we did it this morning during Advent And we do it just about every year. At the end of our short Advent prayer response, we declare together, we are your people walking in darkness, yet seeking the light. To you we say, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Now that might take your mind back to the text Austin read from Matthew chapter 24, which speaks of the second coming of the Son of Man. But in that text, Matthew 24, the, the coming of Christ sounded like a bit of a terrifying prospect, right? Can we be honest uh, about that? The, the return of Christ in Matthew 24 is depicted like the flood in the days of Noah. So that is a little bit concerning. I do think we need to be careful because it's easy to then slip into sort of that left-behind theology. I think that's where a lot of that comes from is a text like that. And I want to, as we think about this, encourage you to try to get that left-behind idea out of your mind so that we might understand this in a way that is a little bit more helpful, I think. Because if we're consistent with the image that Jesus uses here being left behind is actually a good thing, right? Being taken away, that is the bad thing if we're consistent with the image of the days of Noah. But anyway, I think one of the points of this teaching from Jesus is related to what we are talking about from Isaiah chapter 2. And it begins here in verse 42 of chapter 24, where Jesus says this, Therefore, stay awake happens when we are waiting often we are lulled to sleep jesus says therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your lord is coming but know this that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into therefore you also must be ready For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus says you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. Just like the recipients of Isaiah's Isaiah's prophecy here, I think there's a lot of overlap there. There's hope. There's no timeline. There's hope and a promise of a future, but not much more explanation Than that, and we're not looking for that explanation or that timing. If we were provided the exact timing, there's really no reason to learn the ways of the Lord or to to walk in the paths of our Lord. You know, we could just wait until moments before that precisely timed and clearly communicated return and then clean up our act right at the last minute. A high school student cleaning up the house after a house party, just before the parents arrive. Not that that is autobiographical in any way. Maybe with my older brothers, I am recounting some of their experiences, but Jesus says, stay awake. Stay awake. Be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the question that leaves us with, I think, today is how do we stay awake? Again, this is one of the purposes of the Advent season. We remind ourselves that just as Israel waited for her coming Messiah, we await the return of Christ, and we want to do so faithfully. We want to be faithful in our waiting, so how do we remain expectant, and awake and faithful as we wait. And I want to suggest today, we're going to look at a couple of additional suggestions in the coming weeks, but for now I want to suggest that remaining faithful in our waiting begins with repentance. Begins with repentance. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight argues that if our lives are out of line with justice, peace, wisdom, and goodness. We need to be corrected. We should desire correction. As followers of Jesus, we need correction, and we should seek that correction. And I think this is how we begin to appropriately wait for our coming king. We become a repentant people, recognizing our need, Recognizing our need for correction and willingly submitting to that correction. Pentecostal scholar Cheryl Bridges john said this. She said this, one repentant person is like a spark. Their confession igniting another, that one igniting another until penitence burns like fire among the people of God. In other words, our repentance is contagious. It's not only good for our own souls. It is most certainly good for our own souls. But it isn't only necessary for my spiritual health and development. It also has tremendous impacts throughout the community of faith. When repentance is practiced and embraced, it becomes normal It becomes a common descriptor that that is used to understand who we are as the people of God. We begin to see the beauty and the possibilities that it opens us up to. And I begin to think, "Maybe, maybe that is a practice I should jump into because I see the beauty of it. I see the health that it brings to the community. And I am encouraged to then jump into that practice. And I think this is one of the clearest ways that we will be able to know if we are looking for the return of Christ. Are we obsessed with the sins of others or have we become really good at repenting? Are we obsessed with the sins of others or have we personally and communally become really good at repenting? Not have we become good like achieving some spiritual feat to receive accolades, but Has repentance become so ingrained in us that we are known as a repentant people? A people who are faithfully awaiting their king will be marked by repentance. Here's the reality I don't know that when Christ returns, I don't know that anybody is really going to be ready for that in terms of, yeah, I've got my stuff together, I've been waiting. The bed's made, you know, the house is cleaned. I'm ready for the return of Christ. Faithful, I always have been faithful. Nothing I need to change. Jesus has returned, great. Our holiness... Our righteousness, our love, our our justice, our desire for moral precision and moral perfection, while all of those are good things and things to be pursued, I, I don't know that those are as much the mark of a people ready for the return of Christ as repentance is. Because we will never achieve perfection in those arenas. But we can always be marked By our repentance, by our recognition of our need, our recognition of our need for correction and our willingness to enter into that through repentance. I think the real indicator, are we a people waiting faithfully for our king, waiting expectantly, longing and yearning for the coming king? I think the real indicator is how comfortable, how comfortable are we with repentance, Kevin, if you all want to come up, I just want to give us a a couple of moments here to sit in stillness, a little bit of silence, to think about these things. We're going to sing a song together in just a moment, but I, I want to provide some space as we think about the prophet Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us learn the ways of our Lord. Let us walk in the paths of our Lord. As we think about our gospel reading, looking ahead, waiting and expecting the return of Christ. How comfortable are we with our own need, and with the practice of repentance? Let's just sit with that for a moment. Lord Jesus, we invite you into this moment, knowing that it is not our invitation that brings your presence, but you are with us, and our invitation is just an acknowledgement of our need. So we invite you into this space, into this moment, into our hearts and our lives, And we pray that you would stir our hearts, that you would birth in us a recognition of our need, a recognition of our need for correction, and a willingness to enter into that. We pray that the next four weeks would sort of be a training ground as we take moments to enter into silence, stillness, and even solitude, we pray that in those moments, as we disengage from the busyness, that you would meet with us, that we might be shaped, that we might faithfully walk in the paths that you have laid before us. We invite you, Holy Spirit, into our lives to walk with us during this Advent journey. Pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.